Welcome back to another episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. I'll be your host for the day. My name's Christopher Brown. So since the start of this podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why are you doing this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about just talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we find ourselves often becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, in mid-2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal. Get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with the subject to learn about them from them. And today's guest is no exception to that. Today I chat with Senior Pastor for the Metropolitan Community Church in Toronto, Senior Pastor Jeff Rock. We talk about politics, religion, and finding love for oneself. So with that being said, here is Cross Border Interviews featuring Jeff Rock. Usually I'd offer you a coffee, but as with... We're 3,000 kilometers away from each other. That is not going to happen. Um, my first question usually is, uh, where does your sense of duty come from? Where does your sense of service come from? Um, that's, a really, uh, that's a really heavy question. Um, I think for me, uh, I'm the first person to recognize I'm white, middle-class, educated, Canadian-born, um, literally when it comes to the, the, the ladder of power and privilege, I'm pretty much up at the top. Uh, the one thing that makes me a little bit different is that I happen to be an openly fabulous gay man and, uh, wear that very proudly on my sleeve. Um, but the really interesting thing is, and I'm totally going to go off on a tangent because I do that. Hey, Here, if yeah, you I'm, didn't, it would be a crappy podcast. So we need oh. people to talk. <laughs> so here's something that I found since moving to downtown Toronto. Downtown Toronto is a very inclusive, open-minded place. And, um, you know, folks are very diversity-minded. But the easiest form of diversity is sexual diversity. It's a lot easier to, you know, welcome a gay man or a lesbian woman into corporate culture than it is to deal with some racial issues and racial tensions that still, you know, divide within our country and within our world. So this is where it gets really fascinating. In the era of the Me Too movement, I think as a gay man... On Bay Street in Toronto, I have more power and privilege than a straight man does. Why would you say that? Well, what I mean by it is, you know, I can go up to a a female executive and say, oh, hey, girl, hey, how you doing? And uh, not have to worry around, uh, you know, some straight men, rightfully so, are a little bit more cautious and careful around their female colleagues in the era of the Me Too movement. Uh, And uh, any executive who shows even the slightest bit of homophobia is going to be called to the curb in the current culture that we live in because it's no longer even remotely socially acceptable to be LGBTQ exclusive. Um, You know, the banks, the insurance companies, all major corporations in Canada are really active in LGBTQ rights uh, in this day and age, which is a fantastic thing. Um, So I've always seen myself as a person of great power and privilege. And there's a a really great quote that I get from Spider-Man when uh, Auntie May says to to Peter Parker, uh, with great um, gifts comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Thank you. Great power comes great responsibility. And I quote that really often. And somebody once said to me, uh, Jeff, you know, that's from the Bible, right? 
And I went, really? Uh, and it actually is a biblical uh, saying of Jesus. It, you know, it's worded slightly differently. I'll Google it later to tell you the whole thing. So somebody had to remind the pastor that the line didn't actually come from <laughs> the uh, comic books, from a comic book. It actually comes from the Bible. But it's that notion that, you know, everybody's different, right? Everybody has their, their giftedness uh, and their vulnerabilities. And that's part of what makes life interesting and makes us who we are. Um, you know, I certainly have my own in securities and vulnerabilities and things that I'm not good at. Um, but I think that we're, we're each blessed by our creator, whatever you can see that to be, uh, with certain gifts and talents, and we're called to share them. And I'm a real believer that when we share our gifts and talents, we're stronger together. You know, uh, we become greater than the sum of our parts. So so where does my duty to serve come from? Um, it, it's, I think, the same duty to serve that every single person is called for, no matter what your intellectual ability is, no matter what your mental health status or socioeconomic status. I think we all have gifts and talents, uh, and we're called to share those gifts and talents. And, and um you know, to me, when we do that, we become stronger together and life becomes better. You know, I'm a real believer that we're in this world and in this life together. And so, you know, my, my biggest core value is collective action and community. Now, so as a pastor, I always say my job isn't to save souls. I really don't give a shit what you believe. Am I not swearing? Go for it. Um, we had the former minister. We had a, a minister on the podcast who literally opened a beer and was chugging it while we were recording. So go for it. <laughs> Um, my liquor cabinet's right there. But, but um, I really, I, I, and I mean this honestly, I don't give a shit what people believe. That's not my job. My job is to build a community where people can explore their sense of spirituality and find their faith, whatever that might be together. I come from the Christian tradition. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus. But the congregation I serve now, uh, the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto, has congregants who identify as Buddhist, Muslim, about a dozen people who identify as Jewish, a whole lot of atheist and agnostic folks, uh, and they come to a Christian church where we do communion and talk about Jesus every week um, because we seek to be a spiritual community that, yes, is Christian based, uh, but also encourages people to find community and learn and grow from each other and their different experiences. So usually I would jump into background, but uh, your your tangent there has just opened up a wide range of questions <laughs> that we are not going to be talking about your past. We're going to be talking about just that opening four minutes that you just went on there. How do we build a community in today's society where we are uh, where we have a president of the United States who is about me and has put that upon people to be about me. So how do we build a community around the me movement, not the me too movement, but the I'm first movement? You know, so to me, I think that that kind of what I call radical individuality, radical individualism is a byproduct of the Enlightenment. Um, at the end of the Middle Ages, we had the Renaissance. Um, people started to have a Gutenberg uh, Bible and the printing press and the ability to read and learn and grow and formulate our own opinions. I think to me that is the greatest thing that there is, right? Um, uh, that ability to have our own opinions, have our own sense of spirituality, uh, to you know, the whole notion of the scientific method where you create a theory, you test out. All of these things are byproducts of the Enlightenment, which are born out of this notion of uh, individual self-expression. And you know, right after the Renaissance is the Romantic period yep. where people started to conceive of, heck, you could get married for love and not out of duty and 
family um, arranged marriages and so on and so forth. And so much of our Western culture is based on this notion of the pursuit. You know, the American dream is the notion that you can become successful if you work hard enough, if you show enough ingenuity. I don't think that individualism is a bad thing. Uh, but every shining light has a shadow. Okay. Yep. Right. And I think Donald Trump <laughs> exemplifies the risk that that individualism goes because it's not individuality or collective action and community. It can't be either or. It has to be both and. Why not? Right? Why can't it be both? Why can't it be one or the other? Because we um, we we have worked so hard and we have brought together all these uh, communities together, but people are still being left out. So Mm -hmm. how do we make sure that everyone realizes that it is both, not just one, because even if we do all work together, people are still going to be left behind. Well, and and, you know, if you, you want to think of the exact opposite of, of, Donald Trump, there are people who are who, who lack a sense of self and are too giving. And um, it's easy for a society to become only about the collective and uh, can easily slip into sort of this um, dystopic uh, um, experience where people lose the, the opportunity to have free will and to pave their own way and become too duty bound. So, uh, you know, how do, how do we make those two things come together? I think we have to to rely on ingenuity and uh, allow people to pursue their own hopes and dreams and loves and desires. Uh, but also to recognize that, um, you know, I, I just finished a whole sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And the whole notion of the seven, seven deadly sins is when you put your sense of self over top of somebody else. So, it, it, you know, I did a whole sermon on the sin of lust. And lust isn't sexual desire. It's totally normal to look at somebody with sexual desire. That's not sinful. But when you say my sexual desire is more important than your free will and sense of security, and I'm putting my needs and wants over your needs and wants, that's when it becomes rape and and becomes sexual uh, subjugation and becomes you know sinful in my regard. So so I think it's great if we all have hopes and dreams. But if your hopes and dreams come at the expense of somebody else's hopes and dreams, it's it, it stops being uh, about individual. Individuality starts becoming about domination. So you just opened up a can of worms with that whole I'm, lust topic. <laughs> um, I, am, I am the gay pastor of a large and largely LGBTQ congregation. Uh, so, yeah, talking about sex and lust tends to be um, within my wheelhouse quite often. Well, I'm not ta- I'm not just talking about uh, sex and lust. I'm talking about what you just said about um, the need of uh, your your desires over top of somebody else. Um being forced upon um, the right, and I, I mean this with all due respect to the right of the political spectrum, the socially right, would say that the LGBT movement has put their uh, desire of their needs upon all of society. So, how do you balance that? Because that is to them sinful. Yeah. yeah. So. So. So human rights are just about the most basic concept in the universe. You are human, therefore you have rights. The problem with human rights is, in so many of the human rights debates, freedom of religion comes against freedom of sexual sexuality and sexual orientation. You know, freedom uh, of speech impacts others' uh, freedom to live in a place of safety and security. Uh, and it's so, human rights become so 
quickly complicated. And and I think uh, around sexuality, it's no different. And uh, you know this about me, Chris. I'm a nice political centrist. I ran uh, for the Liberal Party, oh, I guess four and a half years ago. And I see myself very much as a centrist because, you know, I look at parties that are more on the right uh, of the political spectrum and they say, oh, no, there should be no regulation. Everybody should be able to you know, live that American dream. Uh, if you're smart enough and hardworking enough, you should be able to become a multimillionaire, billionaire, and no restrictions. Then on the other side, on the far left, you you sometimes the, the if you want to use a trope, um, everybody needs everything and should should have all guaranteed income and guaranteed this and guaranteed that. And and as a Canadian who's lived in both the most conservative province in the country in Alberta and went to university in the most progressive province in in Quebec, I've seen the best and worst of both of those systems. One that says you know um, you need to fight for yourself. The other one says the government needs to do everything you need. And I think both of those are erroneous because what I believe is you should use that free will and that pursuit and desire to be successful. And if you fail, there should be a social security net to help you get back up and try again. But to me, it's not an option to stop trying. Um, we need to create a society where people dust themselves up and try again and again as many times as possible. Because I know people who live on social assistance, uh, at, you know, 100% haven't worked in years, and it's not good for their sense of self because they don't have a sense of purpose and meaning. And 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 if you don't have purpose and meaning in your life, uh, it 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 loses your desire to keep living. In the same way, um, if all you focus on is your own needs and your own wants, then you're leaving society behind and um, you're not helping anyone. And, and, you know, there's so many great quotes about, you know, great, good for you for being a multimillionaire and you built that factory, but the roads that you drive on are paid for out of social services. The the uh, medical care that your staff get are paid out of social services. And the fact that no one is in this alone. So, you know, I'm a, a centrist to a fault. Um, I absolutely think that, uh, uh, obviously, LGBTQ people should be completely and utterly liberated to express their sexuality and marry. And if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. <laughs> you know, to me, it's, to me, it's not um, uh, it, it, it's not a, an either or kind of a situation. And where does religious fall in, into this? Religion, as a, as the senior pastor of a church in downtown Toronto, how do you balance the need of the individual with the need of society in religion? Well, there's a, a really great line that if you're used to um, being an oppressor, um, equality feels like oppression. So if you're used to being pretty high on the hog, and you're, you know, you're used to the LGBTQ community or racialized communities or indigenous communities being down here. If you start to get like this, this group is going to feel oppressed. You've taken away my rights. Um, you know, in this era of COVID-19, especially in the United States, there's folks protesting. You can't lock me down. It's my right to die. If I give me freedom or give me death um, or, or the New Hampshire license plate is live free or die. Um, and that notion that my rights and freedoms are being trampled because uh, I'm being asked to do something for the good of everybody so that the more vulnerable can have a chance in this era of COVID-19. And quite honestly, and, and very understandably, that feels like oppression to a lot of people. You know, as I was saying earlier, that white uh, CEO, a straight male, for the first time in his life is feeling a little 
maybe not at the highest rung because of the era of the Me Too movement. And so for a lot of, you know, there's a lot of feeling of loss and lament and ooh, uh, uh, fear within straight male communities, but we have to address it, right? We have to, uh, you know, I'm, my deep concern about the United States and Donald Trump isn't so much his right-wing rhetoric, it's the divisiveness that it's creating. So you get people on the left who make fun of his weight, the way he speaks, the words he uses, his accent. Um, and if you say Donald Trump is a X, Y, Z, fat, lazy slob, you're also telling a whole bunch of other people who look like Donald Trump. And, and you want to know what's causing sort of the, the, the political rhetoric in the United States. It's not just a, a one-sided, uh, the right is bad. I think the left needs to take some responsibility and show some compassion. And, and you know, sometimes I get a lot of trouble um, from my LGBTQ colleagues because I'm a little bit more tolerant of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia than some people think I should be because – I think it's I, I think that we're not going to change the world by always being oppositional, that we have to understand where somebody is coming from. And if 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 equality feels like to oppression to you, I want us to sit down and have a conversation about it. And again, this is why I'm a um, maybe a bit of a Pollyanna rose colored glasses, uh, liberal uh, centrist, because I really do believe that we need to sit down and create solutions together. And, and you know, you're from Alberta, you, you know this as well as I do. I think people who work in the oil and gas industry and folks who are environmental activists need to be able to sit down and hash out a plan for climate change. And we witness in Alberta the CEOs and the leaders very open to engaging in really tough conversations around the environment and the oil and gas industry, but the vast majority of the populace get reactionary and 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 are worried that they're going their oil and gas is under attack, and so it sometimes uh, scuttlebutts any attempt at having really constructive dialogue. Well, and I think not even just the uh, CEOs of oil companies and environmentalists, but it's also uh, and and your church is sort of a a, a unicorn in some sense. It's <laughs> uh, it's a. Uh, it's sort of a place where, like you said, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, uh, Jewish people, people of all faiths can come. But if you go outside of your church, you don't get that that often. I mean, in downtown central Toronto, it's 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 fairly common in this day and age, even in places like uh, Edmonton. You know, there's starting to be a, a feeling that. Um, racism is not okay. Anti-indigenous sentiments are not okay. And people are, are, are really calling each other out. And I think we're finally starting to find these societies where um, it doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from, you belong and your rights are respected. Uh, and, and to me, that's the Canadian experience, right? Our, we're a nation that's founded on you know, multiple nations coming together, the English, the French, the indigenous, and, and creating this experiment that is Canada. Um, you know, Toronto, 50% of people that live in Toronto were not born in Canada. Exactly half the population are not Canadian born. And 50% are visible minorities. And those are different groups, right? Because if you're the child of immigrants and you're a visible minority, you're no longer a part of that 50% immigrant, but you're 50% um, yeah. uh, visible minority. So you put those two things together, you're looking at 60, 70, 75% of people are either not Canadian born and have an accent uh, or are, are people of color or uh, have a, a, a visible minority status. And for the most part, it works out, you know, really well. It's part of what what we are as Canadians. But I still don't know my next door neighbor. 
right? Um, I know a couple of my next door neighbors. Um, um, and, and that's the difference you know, between still- Toronto and uh, downtown Calgary or uh, any place in Alberta is or, or rural communities anywhere in this country. Exactly. Yeah. So being do you think do you think the structure that is set in place by the metropolitan church would work in rural communities because in a perfect world it would but let's be honest if you were to go open up this church in downtown and i only use this uh, this town because i came from it newcastle clarington it wouldn't work as well well, I, I'll say in some ways yes and in some ways no. I mean, the reason it works here in Toronto is we were founded as a gay and lesbian church uh, in 1973. And everybody, uh, you know, gay men and lesbians are about as uncommon as you can possibly get. Gay men and lesbians, if you want to use stereotypes, have nothing in common. <laughs> Insert jokes about drag queens and doing your nails and power tools uh, and, and you all. I mean, we, we all know those jokes and I hate to over rely on those stereotypes. But what gay men and lesbian women had in common in 1973 was a common experience of oppression. They'd both been uh, put down, excluded from families of origin and faith communities and society. And so in 1973, gay men and lesbians together founded this church, uh, the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto. Well, pretty soon after, uh, there was the bathhouse raids in Toronto and there was some incidences of police brutality and racialized Caribbean black communities who experienced um, uh, oppression by police and the gay community that was experiencing oppression by police made a very intentional um, alliance against uh, police uh, oppression uh, in 1981 in, in Toronto. Within 24 hours of the bathhouse raids, which was kind of Canada's gay stonewall moment, um, the black community and the gay community held an anti-police brutality rally together. It was a really beautiful moment. And so MCC Toronto became you know, multiracial. We have a refugee program that supports 800 LGBTQ asylum seekers per year, which is just crazy to me. Um, and so we're very racially diverse. And, you know, um, we all have this common element, though, that we're either LGBTQ or allies. So that's what the, the common thread is for us. Um, we're not just diverse for the sake of being diverse. There is still an LGBTQ core and a Christian core as well in our, our community. But at the start of the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, searching through Netflix, Steel Magnolias, great movie. Okay. No, the gay man's going to bring up Steel Magnolias. And I watched it. And there's this, you know, I, I hadn't seen it for years, but there's this character, Weezer, who everybody hates. They can't stand Weezer. She's annoying. She's ornery. But she's one of their friends. And when she's going through a tough time, they bring her a casserole. When it snows out, they go and shovel her driveway, even though they can't stand her. Because there's this thing about rural communities where even if you don't like your next door neighbor, you take care of them. And so the, the commonality in a rural community is that, you know, in, in the harshness of Canadian winter, somebody gets stuck in the snowbank, you push them out. If somebody needs, if you're, you're baking and you need sugar, you go and knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, can you lend me some sugar? Um, uh, I am your neighbor. That, yes, was, um, anyways, I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> reference, I think you got it. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're living in downtown Toronto, there's a 24-hour grocery store in the corner. I don't need to borrow um, sugar from my neighbor. If I my, my car gets stuck in a snowbank, I just call CAA. They'll be there in 10 minutes. We don't have the reliance in an urban community on one another that we do in rural communities that really binds us together. And so I think where MCC Toronto has been successful is we've found something that binds people together. Um, 
uh, as primarily gay and lesbian people, that then everything else is kind of cross-vectorial. But, you know, I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, which is a fairly white-bred, hockey-loving community. Um, uh, But there were racialized people in my, you know, on on my hockey team. Uh, You know, there was a Muslim guy, and whenever we ordered pizza, we had to make sure there wasn't pepperoni on it. And, And as a kid, those things I didn't even notice. Now, as an adult reflecting back, I'm realizing how diverse my rural or fairly rural upbringing was, uh, even in a place like Sudbury. And and you'll know this from Alberta. um, It's becoming more and more diverse every day, even in in more rural communities. And um, uh, I think it's part of one of the the beautiful things that is the Canadian experiment right now um, is just how much um, we're learning and leaning into a 21st century understanding of community that's that's um uh more multivectorial and it's not um you know the, the most different thing is whether you're irish scottish or british um and or french and it, it's sort of this beautiful experiment uh, um, that is the canadian consciousness and i think it's kind of become our brand almost as as canadians do you um thought i love to talk. You notice that oh i thought like what question, and then I go on for 15 minutes. Which, it must be a picture or something. It's awesome, though. But here's the – in 2020, we are seeing the decline of churches across this country. You are uh, – like uh, you, you talk to rural communities. They are losing their church because there's no longer pastors, people in your profession. Um are you finding that right now? Are you finding that there is a decline in uh, attendees to your Sunday ma- uh, church, uh, Sunday uh, Sunday services? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we're on a, a fairly plateauish, maybe slight decline. Um, but I live in hope. Um, people might be going to churches or religious institutions less, but I think people are more spiritual now than they've ever been before. Just because of COVID or in other senses? Uh, no, no. I mean, I mean, in our society in general, if you look at you know, yoga has exploded in popularity in the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, because it, it, it integrates embodiment of, of who we are as physically, but also with spirituality. Um, a couple of years ago, I did the Camino de Santiago, which is a religious pilgrimage across Spain. It's 800 kilometers. It has gone up in popularity something like a thousand times in the last 20 years because the number of people who are, who are doing this pilgrimage trying to decide what they want to do with their life or make a major relationship decision or there's all kinds of movies about the Camino de Santiago. Um, You know, Oprah Winfrey, the great hero of the 90s and 2000s, every single episode of Oprah is really about spirituality. um, And she sought to integrate spirituality into a daytime talk show, which is why she was so wildly popular. Um, I think more and more of us are asking – spiritual questions in the last 20, 30 years than, than, uh, you know, our society was becoming less and less spiritual for a long time and we're still less and less religious. Um, you know, I very much identify as a religious person, obviously I'm a pastor, but I think first and foremost, I like to think of myself as a spiritual person. Uh, and that's why I'm totally comfortable using the stories and the message in the life of Jesus to talk to a Muslim or a Jewish person as they find their own sense of spirituality. So what do you, what, what do you define, uh, as- as a spiritualist and a relig- uh, religious person, because in my sense, there's two different categories there. One person who 
reads the uh, book of whatever religion they are and they live by it 24-7. Spiritualists will interpret the Bible or will interpret the uh, writings of whatever religion to uh, to their living style. So what do you define the two as? I mean, sometimes people talk about cafeteria Christianity, where I like this thing, but I don't like that thing, so I'm not going to get that. And you pick and choose what you want. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I identify as spiritual first and foremost. But, you know, so for example, not a lot of young people go to church or mosque or synagogue. It's just a reality. But if you go to a university campus today, the faculty or uh, religious studies classes will be the most sought after classes to get into. Because young people are deeply curious, what is this religion thing? And, you know, my congregation grew with uh, gay and lesbian and bi and trans people who had left their religions of origin, having been hurt. And so they came to us, you know, to reclaim their sense of religion. Now, anybody who knew who comes to my church isn't coming because they've left a church that's rejected them. They're coming because they're curious about the church their grandparents or great-grandparents left and the tradition, and, and they're trying to find their sense of spirituality. So like I said, I don't, see, I don't see my job as telling people what to believe. It's to build a community where people can learn and explore. So it's belonging is the number one thing. And then learning how to behave spiritually and how to take care of yourself and nurture your spirit uh, is number two. And then number be- believing is number three. So belong, behave, believe. It used to be believe, behave, then if you believed this and you behaved this way, you might be allowed to belong to our religion. Now I'm saying it's you need to belong. We'll teach you uh, how to behave and and about spirituality. Uh, and then if you choose to believe, you're welcome to. Um, so it's, it's creating that radical uh, welcome that tries to take away any of the barriers to faith community. And so I don't talk about... I don't talk about religion a lot. I talk about faith community or spiritual community um, because I, I don't really, I don't, I'm not really religious. Like you have to understand, I know, you have to understand Jesus didn't like religion. Jesus spent three years of his life going around the countryside criticizing religion of the day, telling people to not judge one another uh, and to love each other radically and unconditionally as God loved them and to forgive and be forgiven. Unfortunately, Jesus accidentally founded the world's biggest religion in critiquing the religion of the day, and he created the most judgmental people (laughs) in the world, because Christians are mostly known as being the most judgmental people. It's kind of ironic. Sometimes I feel really bad for Jesus. There's a great Gandhi quote, I love your Jesus, Um, I love your Christ, uh, but he's so much unlike your Christians. You know, that that notion that that much of the, the, the radical inclusivity and love that Jesus sought to proclaim in the non-judgment has unfortunately become the antithesis of much of the Christian tradition. So so we, you, you, you talked about youth. Um, how are you engaging youth? Because um, the, the let, let's stick with the LGBT youth, because the ones that I speak to in here in Alberta, Religion is not on their radar. It is, uh, they heard it from their conservative uh, father and mother that they're going to hell. How do you, how do you balance that and help youth at the same time? Because they are struggling so hard with uh, growing up in a conservative uh, household where they are not accepted, and religion where there are parts of the Bible that says bad things about us so how do you balance that to make people believe that you know what while they might think this the bible 
might not be shouldn't be taken so literally in uh, accepting yourself as an LGBT person. I mean, I could answer that in a really long sermon about what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, which is very, very little. Jesus never mentions it. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about being hospitable and welcoming. It has nothing to do with sexuality. But, but at the same time, okay, it might not say much, but the religious, uh, and I use this word oh. politely, fanatics will say, Leviticus. Leviticus says you shall not lie with another man. It also says don't tattoo yourself. Oh, <laughs> Um, uh, oopsies, missed that one. Uh, it also says don't eat shellfish. Like so, so the book of Leviticus was written for people who were Bedouins that lived in the desert. Okay, Chris, I'm going to give you some advice in life. Don't eat sushi I don't. in rural Alberta. It is not healthy. That is not like you don't buy sushi at a gas station. You just you don't do that. Right. In the same way, don't eat shrimp in the middle of the desert not going to be safe you're going to get sick um don't eat pork pork if it's not cooked properly has a lot of parasites and three thousand years ago eating pork was a dangerous thing thou shalt not eat pork oh and by the way we have a really low birth rate um it's really important you have as many babies as you can so no masturbation no gay sex i mean these these are anyways don't get me started but uh, no and i I understand (laughs) but let's be honest they don't care about that part no, it, and it has nothing to do with the Bible, what the Bible says. You know, we all know the joke about polyblend cotton uh, things, and the Bible prohibits uh, uh, clothing that has more than one fabric type. Um, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. In the same way, Trump has nothing to do with Christianity, but the evangelical right support of Donald Trump is all about race. It really isn't about uh, Christianity. Donald Trump, I don't think, has cracked a Bible in his life. He doesn't know uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is the most simple tenet of Christianity. In fact, he wished everybody a great Easter and happy Easter and or happy Good Friday, like as if he didn't understand the, the basic concepts of what the Easter story of Jesus' death and resurrection are. Don't get me started. But uh, so, so people use uh, the Bible to um, reiterate their own experiences of, of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia. The Bible is replete with very positive depictions of LGBTQ people. One of the first uh, converts to Christianity in the book of Acts was a, a, a black Ethiopian eunuch. So basically, a, a, and arguably a transgender woman of color was one of the first people who converted to Christianity. Wow. Uh, David, you know, the star of David, King David, the great unifier who created the nation of Israel. Um, the Messiah must be of the lineage of David because David was so important. Certainly the Messiah and Jesus must be of the lineage of David. Had a lover named Jonathan. Right. The Bible is, is just as replete with really positive depictions. Um, you know, and, and it, uh, this gets me in a little bit of trouble sometimes with the straights. There's mentions in the Bible that Jesus had a, a, a disciple that he loved. Mary, isn't it? <laughs> no, because Mary is also there when the disciple whom Jesus loved. It, so it's, it's the, at the tomb is Mary and the disciple Jesus loved. And they go and see Simon Peter. So it's not Peter. It's not Mary. Um, whom was this disciple that Jesus loved? Was this a romantic love? Was it not? Who knows? Was Jesus married? We don't know. There's so much about his life we don't know. Um, what did Jesus think about homosexuality? He never mentions it. And you can interpret and, and it's called eisegesis when you read yourself into scripture. And we're all guilty of it. Um, somebody could say, well, it never actually says that David's uh, 
friend Jonathan and his lover just tells you that they rip off their clothing and love with each, each other with a love that exceeds the love of a woman. Um, I mean, that's pretty gay if you ask me. Um, and you could say that a eunuch isn't necessarily a transgender person, but it's not a strong way to say somebody who's gender non-conforming uh, in ancient times would have been what we consider to be a transgender person. So how, how did you balance it? How did you balance coming out and religion? Because you decided to uh, go take the religious path uh, later on in life compared to when most people might start thinking about it. You were in university when you uh, decided to yeah. take it. I did a science degree for four years, and it was sort of always in the back of my head, maybe someday I'd like to become a minister, and and it just sort of happened. But I'm really lucky that I grew up in the United Church of Canada. When I was a boy coming out, I would hear my pastor say, God loves LGBTQ people. So I grew up in a very, you know, white, upper middle class, uh, you know, suburban congregation that that was nice and sensibly human rights oriented and, and gay positive. I mean... It, it wasn't super deep. It was sort of, um, you know, skin deep. If, if if ever push came to shove, there would be a lot of challenges. But for me as a child to hear God loved me was so unbelievably important. And I, I, you know, you go back to that first question, what is your duty to serve? I recognize that as a queer person who grew up in an LGBTQ inclusive family and church. I went to a performing arts high school uh, where I was able to come out at 14 without facing a lot of homophobia is not... This is not a common experience. Mine is not uh, not a common experience, and therefore I feel slightly duty-bound uh, to, to address it. And because I'm so convicted in my beliefs and in my uh, sense that I'm unconditionally loved by my creator as an LGBTQ person, it's my job and my duty to, to make sure that there's that kind of an environment for people of all different backgrounds, beliefs, religions, traditions, upbringings, to know that they too... Um, are unconditionally loved by their creator. So how do you how do you talk to kids who are not going through the exact same situation yeah. that you went through? Because okay, you you might it might seem like it was all perfect in your world, but uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, without naming names, my my life was a living hell growing up, and when I came out, it was torture. So yeah. yep. uh, absolutely. And so so you know I think. It, <laughs> This is really corny, but there's a hymn that I grew up uh, singing. Uh, it's called I Was There to Hear Your Born and Cry. And the first verse is I was there when you were born. And it's then the second verse is I was there when you were growing up. Uh, and then the third verse is when you decided to go off into the dark where demons dwell, I was there too. And there's, you know, Psalm 139, where can I go to escape from God's presence? Nowhere, even if I go into the darkness, the dark is not as dark to you uh, because God is with us in the good and bad times. So I think it is really natural and normal and everybody's life to step away from religion to go off into the dark places and find your sense of self uh, i think it's really normal for somebody in their teenage years or in their 20s to really reject the religion of their parents and their past and i think that's a really important step uh and i often find in our 30s that a lot of us start to ask those spiritual questions what is the meaning of life what is my value what is my purpose um you know uh, amazing grace I once was lost and now I'm found. Um, I think we can't be found until we lose ourselves. And there's so much bullshit from our lives that we need to pull back to find our authentic sense of self. Um, 
it's what Carl Jung calls individuation. And only when we find our authentic selves and learn to love ourselves unconditionally in individuation can we do what Jung calls the last half of life, which is communitas, and build authentic and meaningful and unconditionally loving relationships. But the source of it, the source of a real relationship, a real unconditionally loving relationship needs to be the unconditional love of yourself. So if you want to ask me what I think the meaning and purpose of life is, it's to learn to love yourself. Really? The way that you are loved by your creator. And only when you love yourself fully and authentically can you love other people fully and authentically. This is I'm getting super deep, which is good because uh, like um, I'll, I'll I'll admit um, this uh, this episode's airing the first day of uh, Pride Month in uh, Canada, so June first, oh the first Saturday, so whatever that is, um, and it's good that you're deep because I'll be honest, I've struggled with religion all my life, not all my life, but I, I lost a partner at a young age, and uh, uh, it did make me second guess if there was a creator, and I still find myself questioning that I, uh, I I would say when I uh, when I moved to Alberta I was a, an atheist full-fledged now I'm more I'm slowly moving upon like agnostic I think there's something out there I just don't know what it is and to those people who are coming to you who are talking to you how do you get them to is it like you said more you have to start loving yourself before you can fully accept anything or is it you know what let's start trying to work on you before we work on you finding the lord yeah i i think um you're hitting the nail right on the head i think hey you're in your 30s you're starting to ask some more spiritual meaning questions that's a good thing i think we should all i'm i'm a believer in question everything like i identify as a scientist before i do as a pastor I'm a questioner. You know, when I read a Bible story, I'm like, hmm, did that really happen that way? What could this possibly mean? What is the metaphor in here? Did did the world literally flood uh, in the story of Noah's Ark? Or is this a metaphor of actually God doesn't uh, drown people because they've been bad people and floods happened and um, God still loves us? And it's a story that metaphorically tries to unpack that for us. So, you know, I, I think whether you're gay or whether you're uh, – <laughs> You name it. Each and every one of us knows what it's like to worry about belonging, um, to worry about, um, you know, in terms of self-confidence. Even the most confident of people know what it's like to doubt yourself. Um, for those of us who are LGBTQ, that's often the source of our racialized <coughs> person or, you know, no matter what your background is, we will all know that. And, and Brene Brown, who's one of my spiritual heroes, um, she's an, she did these interviews and she asked people about love and belonging. And every single time she, people, she asked them about love and belonging, people told her stories about when they didn't feel loved and when they didn't feel like they belonged. Because wow. every single one of us will have gone into a hockey room locker or a dance class studio or a grade three classroom or a Sunday school classroom, you name it, or the office or a board meeting and be worried, do I belong here? Am I good enough? All of us, every single person in this world has those questions. Again, for us, we're LGBTQ. That's our source. If you're racialized, if you're indigenous, that could well be be your source. But every single person, even the 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 millionaire white straight educated male has the same feelings of insecurity so are you finding so like you said you moved from uh you moved from Sudbury to uh Red Deer Alberta Sudbury to Montreal oh then then you you well you, your first church was in Red Deer correct my first church was in Red Deer but I was educated in Montreal and grew up in Sudbury okay That's the cold okay so 
Are you seeing similar patterns uh, to from like Red Deer, Alberta to downtown Toronto when it comes to religion and finding yourself? Absolutely. One hundred and ten percent. Like since moving to Toronto, I'm interacting with people like I've never like my congregation has people who are borderline homeless and are on disability and some of the top 10 richest Canadians and politicians and uh, queer people who all their lives struggled to make ends meet and seniors and young people. It's just really fascinating. Like when I'm standing there in the pulpit and looking out, sometimes you see two people sitting beside each other. You're like, wow, those two people have absolutely nothing in common. But remember what I said about gay and lesbian people, their commonality is their experience of oppression. Yep. I think that is applies to the straight community, racialized communities, people who live with disabilities, because I've gone on dates with really good looking people. And you want to know what they tell me? I just want somebody to love me for who I am and not how I look. It's like, woe is you. You're extremely beautiful. That must be so hard. Um, But I've also met people who live with a disability. And you know what they say to me? What? I want somebody to love me for who I am and not how I look. I've met people who are rich and they say, I want somebody to love me for who I am and not how much money I have. And I've met people who uh, can barely make ends meet who say, I want somebody to love me for who I am and not much how much money I have. It's sort of this, this common human experience that we all just want love and belonging. And to me, what is, what is spirituality? What is uh, the faith tradition? What was Jesus trying to um, teach people was that they were worth loving and belonging exactly the way they are. And I mean that I don't think that when somebody is born with a disability, um, it's because their parents did something or it's a punishment. I think shit happens. Um, uh, but I think we're each equally loving and I don't think anything is a mistake. If uh, I think uh, our, our gender diversity, our gender expression diversity, our sexual diversity, our racial diversity, our diversity and ability and disability are all just what they are. And it is our goal to love ourselves and accept ourselves just as they are. And I know that's easy for me to say as a white middle class Canadian born person. But I think if I was to try and um, say what is the, 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 the core of the Christian tradition and every religious tradition, it's to learn to love yourself authentically and in so doing, um, recognize that you are loved unconditionally by your creator and then love others unconditionally as well. So I asked the question knowing the answer already, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's going to end a few other questions as well. Do you love yourself mm-hmm. unconditionally? No. Absolutely not. So how, so how do you balance that then? Because you're saying I'm, that uh, to find uh, religion, to find uh, the Lord, you have to love yourself. And you, you, you're, I, I didn't expect that answer, to be honest. <laughs> God, I'm an insecure mess most of the time. But I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. Like, that's what it is to me. It's the work in progress. Okay. Um, you know, uh Love is never unconditional in the human experience. I believe God loves us unconditionally, but it's really freaking hard to learn to love yourself unconditionally. Uh, but that's always a journey. And it's really hard to love other people unconditionally. Like any any parent will say, I love my child unconditionally, except for that time that they smeared feces all over the walls. I didn't really love them that much then. Like we all know unconditional love um, is, is always slightly conditional, right? Um, uh, but I think it's very much a work in progress and I see myself as a work in progress and, and I beat myself up all the time, but then I forgive myself and try again. Uh, you know, the core of the Christian tradition is love yourself and then love other people. And if you fail, ask forgiveness as you are forgiven. And, and to me, it's always this process. Um, and, and that's why, okay, I don't, I don't have religion figured out. I don't have spirituality figured out. I'm done. Cause if I love myself unconditionally, I wouldn't, 
go to church, I wouldn't need to do any of that. Right. To me, it's that it's that that journey that we're all on and that journey towards self-acceptance and then accepting others. So what is the biggest reason people don't love themselves unconditionally? In your opinion, because you, you said that I want someone to love me and not for 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 me and not my bank account and all that, but yeah. like okay, that's superficial. But there's other underlying issues. Is it self worth of themselves? Of I don't feel like I deserve anything good in my life, so therefore I don't I, I don't love myself enough to have it. I mean. Um... I think that's a really great question. Like the core of it is partially wants and desires. But one of the things I've noticed is that hurt people tend to hurt other people, right? If you go to a schoolyard and there's a bully, a schoolyard bully, chances are if you go back to that kid's home, he comes from an abusive home. Um, and that's, that's you know, a really tangible example. But um, I think sometimes the LGBTQ community, especially the white LGBTQ community, has a bit of a racism problem. No. Because we make, no. We make ourselves feel better as gay people by at least, you know, trying to put somebody down. In the same way that a lot of racialized communities and new Canadian communities are quite homophobic. Because whenever, you know, and, and often if we're hurt, we tend to smear that hurt on other people. Um and um, I, I think we live in a, a world that has a lot of pain, right? Uh, and, and a lot of suffering. Um, you know, there's a lot of people really suffering through this period of physical distancing and it's gonna have long-term impacts. And I'm witnessing people being more vitriolic online. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going on with your mental health that you're now acting out against other people. And, you know, again, the source of that is always, we all just, we walk into a room, Am I going to be loved and belonged here? Um, and the temptation is, okay, I can make myself loved and belonged by putting out some, somebody else down. And it becomes this really vicious cycle that I think there's still so much pain in the world. Like, I, this is my science fiction geeky side. You know, in Star Trek, they have replicators. Yeah. There's, enough, there's enough money. And they live in this utopic society where nobody really needs to put anybody else down. But the reality is we don't live in that utopic society. There is still a fight for enough food to go around for people. Um, you know, why did people run out and buy toilet paper uh, at the start of the COVID-19 thing? It was a, a fear that we're gonna run out, um, that somebody's gonna know I poop. Um, uh, so the is everybody shits and everybody needs toilet paper. You don't need to hoard it, like calm down people. Okay. Shame, Yeah. shame, shame. Is, is worse. And like there's, you know. <laughs> so there, well, let's talk what, about COVID-19. Um, are people more turning towards the church now because of COVID-19, do you think? <laughs> they can't really because our doors are closed. Um, well, but you have must you must have people reach out to you either via uh, Facebook, via social yeah, media, phones. Uh, we're doing our online worship service. We've always had an online worship service, but now we're doing the sermons from home. We're doing three time a week Zoom check-ins. I'm doing three time a week daily noon hour reflections for kind of 15 minutes. Um, and yeah, there's actually people who are reaching out and saying, I've never been to your church. Uh, I mean, that's happened like five times. I've never been, but I can't wait till this is over. I want to come in person. Thank you so much. We have a guy who's been interacting, lives in New Jersey, and he used to watch our worship services online. And now he's coming on these Zoom check-ins. And like, um, I, you know, we have people who consider themselves congregants um, all across the country, Canada and all around the world, because I think people are desperately looking for spirituality. And we know after September 11th, there was a huge uptick in attendance of churches in North America uh, because of the big questions of life that September 11th forced us to act, ask. 
I think uh, we're not really seeing that uptick right now because we can't worship in person. But I expect six months from now, as all of us start to deal with the mental health and the spiritual health impacts of COVID-19, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's there's um, people asking questions about the meaning of life. You know, so much of us find meaning and purpose from our jobs, but so many people have lost their jobs or are realizing they might not actually be the essential workers they once thought they were. And it's going to force us, I think, to ask, you know, who am I if I'm not my job? Um, uh, like, who is who is Jeff Rock if he's not the senior pastor? Um uh, what would somebody say about me? You know, and, and I think it's so essential for us to ask big identity questions when we have the chance, because we spend so much of our lives stuffing those big questions of life into the darkness of our psyche and into the dirty, dark corner. Like we don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about meaning and value and purpose. We just need to get through our day and eat a banana nut buffin and watch the latest episode of Game of Thrones to de-stress. Um, but it opens up a question that I want to ask you because I'm not sure if you get asked it. How are you doing through COVID? <laughs> that answer your question um i mean my own mental health has had you know there's good days and there's bad days um i found out a friend died um on friday and that kind of put me into a little bit of a tailspin this weekend but um i think it's important to be open and honest about my own mental health struggles through all this because i think everybody is and, I, and one of the lines that i tell people all the time whether i'm doing a funeral or a worship service or whatever is it's okay to not be okay Right. This sucks. This is unprecedented in human history. It's okay to not be that okay right now, but don't bottle that up and find a way to express it. So my number one go-to technique is find a kid's movie and have yourself a good cry. Marley and me. Marley and me every single day of the week. (laughs) For me, it's the land before time. Oh, yes. (laughs) With a mom. (laughs) Okay, can't even. Um, The other thing is create. Find some drawings. Write some poetry. Um, find some kind of creative outlet, uh, rewrite the lyrics to a song about COVID-19. I mean, find, uh, bake, uh, plant a garden. I've got my little garden here beside me. It's super cute. It's like, I've got little tomato plants going, find some, find some kind of a thing that you can create. So number one is let the emotion out with a movie or something, whether it's through laughter or through crying, create something. And the third is move, use your body. Um, embody your emotions, shake it off, as Taylor Swift puts it. Um, you know, even though we are physical distancing, you can still go for a walk. Don't go to a park where it's going to be crowded, but walk around your neighborhood. Um, if you're in, you know, strict quarantine, uh, you can't do that. But find some other way to to use your body and and uh, embody whatever your feelings are to help express it. Because I'm a firm believer, and I've said this for years, unrelated to COVID-19. If we allow our emotions to fester. That's when they become a problem. Anger is not a bad thing. Sadness is not a bad thing. Fear is not a bad thing. But they're bad things when we make when we force them inside and they they fester and they can come out in really unhealthy ways. And and I'm really worried about the long term impacts uh, or the fourth wave as they talk about, which is the mental health um, implications of something like COVID nineteen. Well, just on that note, like uh, I can tell you that since I've been diagnosed with uh, COVID nineteen, uh, I've went through all the emotions. I can tell you that I went through the emotions of oh. F- Oh crap, I'm going to give this to Ricardo. Oh crap, I'm going to have issues with my health. I'm going to possibly get admitted to the hospital. I went to dark places, and I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, it took me a while to like openly admit that, but I, I'm around to that now. And that's why I started like for about 
four, four or five weeks, I wasn't doing the show and I wasn't talking to people. And that's where I get my my relief from is actually just open, uh, like talking like uh, yeah. some people might say it's a psychiatry appointment, but at the same time, I enjoy it. So <laughs> hey, give me one second. I'm going to go grab something. I'll be right back. Go for it. Boop, ba doop, doop. <laughs> And we'll <laughs> so um, Kubler Ross, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, in the 1960s and 70s, published her theory of the five stages of grief. I don't know how well you can see that. Yep. But it's the idea that you know we start off with denial, and then we go into anger. The third stage is bargaining. Then we have depression, uh, and then finally we come to acceptance. And this is the most simple. Basically, we go into a dark place, but we come out on the other side. Yep. And even though this is a really terrible time, and I, for one, don't think God gave us COVID-19 to teach us a lesson, but I think there are still lessons we can garner out of this. There are silver linings to this cloud. We can come together as a community. We can, um, you know, show generosity. And we can, I think, as a united human people around the world, come out of this better than when we went into it. And yes, we're going to lose a lot of people's lives, and it's awful and terrible, but there are still some good things that can come from it. So, um, uh you know, this basically you go into the dark place, but you come out changed on the other side. You don't go back. Yeah. Like we're not going to return to the old normal. No, there will be a new normal and this will forever change us. And I've, I've been looking a lot and doing some research on like disaster responses and the disaster response curve is similar. You go into the disaster. It's awful. It's awful. Then you come back up with heroism and togetherness. We're in this together. But this is where it's really interesting with disasters as opposed to Kubler-Ross. Then you go back down after the, the disaster continues to drag on into a really dark place of depression. And it's only when you come up on the other side that you get to the acceptance. So with, with disasters, there's like this feeling of solidarity and there's a middle hump. It's kind of like a dromedary or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think we're over that togetherness hump right now. We've had like the horrorism, God bless our frontline workers, we're in this together. And now it's like, fuck, it's week six. <laughs> Um, but and I say this honestly because you know I, you and I are recording this at the end of April. Um, it's this next month that's going to be the tougher month. Yeah, the first six weeks were tough, but I think this month is going to be the toughest month in terms of mental health uh, because it's now at a subconscious level rather than being conscious of our mental health. It's starting to people are getting more and more irritable. Um, well, you're seeing the rise of the protests because, like, I even saw, uh, I think it was yesterday or Saturday or, no, might have been Friday, there was a protest at Queen's Park. And I was like, what? That happens down in the south. It doesn't happen here in Canada. But then – It happened in Alberta, too. It, a- it is. It's happening today in Queen's Park. And I'm like – or not Queen's Park, the Alberta legend. I was like, what is going on with this? Yeah. In defense of the people of Queen's Park, there was like 25 people. And they were um, all social distancing if you saw the helicopter shot. When Doug Ford calls you a right-wing yahoo, <laughs> you know, when Doug Ford is the voice of reason. Um, Doug Ford's uh, actually coming out of this as a good guy. I like him. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he, he is a good guy. He and, and the best thing that he's doing is he knows when to step out of the way and say, this is out of my wheelhouse. I'm going to let the professionals talk. And he's handling it quite well and, and you know, is being rewarded. But, you know, Donald Trump has set the, the bar so low. Um, I mean, I'm trying really not – to get wrapped up in that polemic because it's I think it's an intentional gaslighting to create that divisive politics and this whole bleaching thing uh, and the hydrochloroquine you know part of me as a microbiologist like that's sort of criminal you know people are dying literally because of the erroneous advice of the US president um, and I don't 
again, I don't think it's accidental. I think it's quite intentional. And, you know, it's safe to say that if somebody takes medical advice from Donald Trump, they probably have it coming. Um, but, but, you know, I think we need to recognize uh, how scary this is and how we're all looking for answers. And even the people protesting open back up, it's because they're afraid and, uh, you know, they, they're worried that the consequences of shutdown will be worse um, in the long run. And, and, you know, there's a certain point when the mental health impact of physical distancing is going to be worse than the health impact of COVID-19. And we need to start talking about uh, the number of people that are dying of mental health crises as opposed to the number of people dying of COVID crises and how do we balance those things out. And those are really important and tough conversations to happen um, about restarting the economy, but I hope that they are happening with compassion and, um, uh, you know, the whole thing about science is that it's supposed to be dispassionate. It uses logic rather than passions. And we are passionate people. We're human beings. We are passionate by our nature. And so, uh, you know, my hope and my prayer is that we can we can um, get through this uh, together and get through this with compassion uh, and use that passion that we have uh, in compassion rather than in fighting and um, vitriolic. Who knows? Yeah. Are you, so my last three questions here is a are you happy with how your life has turned out so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I'm on that pathway to learning how to love myself. And I think I have the best job in the world because I get to encourage people to learn to love themselves, too. So um, when I have it all figured out, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, I'm really enjoying the journey. Uh, you know, and who knows when I'll ever get to the destination, if I'll ever get there. But but um to me, the journey is the joy. And looking back on your life, do you regret anything? Ooh. I mean, no. Like, I only think something is a regret if you don't learn a lesson from it. And sometimes I learn those lessons the hard way, um, especially in the world of love. But uh, uh, no, I like I'm not. A, I'm I'm just naturally not a regretful person. I think the toughest thing in the human condition is to ground yourself in the present moment. I think half the time in our lives we worry about how we've messed up in the past and the other half of the time we worry about the future. And like, if you look at the, in, in a lot of ways, I think Jesus was a Buddhist Jew. And I mean that actually quite literally, like there's some theories that Jesus practiced Buddhism in the East and then came back and incorporated Buddhism into Judaism, which is what Christianity is. But Jesus was all about forgive yourself as you are forgiven and do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough worries of its own. Ground yourself in the present. So, like, I try to let go of any mistakes of the past and try to let go of any anxieties about the future and really live in the present moment. Okay, my last question, and you probably have asked, been asked this a few times. You're a man of God. Um, what's your favorite Bible verse? Oh, if I had to pick one verse, it'd probably be Micah 6.8. Which is? Uh, what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, do justice? And this is my favorite translation. Uh don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Um, th there's a bunch of different translations of Micah 6, 8. That's from the message transliteration of the Bible. But it's what does the Lord require of you to love mercy, seek justice, uh, and walk humbly with your God? Wow. Do you take yourself serious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you not just been on the call with me for the last hour? You think I take myself seriously? You, <laughs> Come never, on. you never know. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you- uh, no, but there are, you know, I do take, I do, do take matters of spirituality and inclusion and diversity really seriously. Like that pursuit of love and healthiness and wholeness, I think are, are serious virtues, but uh, we need to pursue them with a bit of levity. Awesome. Jeff, I want to thank you very much for this. Uh, you probably have other things to do right now. So thank you for taking an hour hour out of your day today and just shooting this, the crap with me. And uh, I, I, I anticipated this interview to go so differently, but your opening statement just changed this completely. And I was like, I, I've researched him. I like I know his past. I know which like where he went and all that. And then I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a red herring. You're awesome, though. Rock on. Okay, well, thanks very much. I will let you go and uh, stay safe and uh, just keep being Jeff Rock. Sounds good. Or senior pastor Jeff Rock. <laughs> Reverend Rock. Reverend. <laughs> thanks very much, Jeff. Cheers. Take care. Talk to you later. And once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week.